There's a well-known saying that perception is reality. The idea that our individual perception of something becomes our truth. But if we are honest, this is self-limiting. There are blind spots, solutions, and aspects of an event, concept, or moment that can only be revealed from the vantage point of a diverse community. If we want to continue to be a learning community, we must make it a habit to invite many voices to speak into our lives and help us to evaluate what we see or what we cannot see on our own, even if we don't always agree. This practice helps us to see new opportunities and allows us to grow in a comprehensive way in our journey towards devotion, community, and mission. As an individual, as a house church, as a faith community, as the body of Christ, this is Perspective Shift. Yeah, well, as, as we mentioned, we're talking about devotion, community, and mission. Those are the three pillars of our church. And we've turned a corner. Most of the stuff that we've talked about has been about devotion, our vertical relationship with Jesus. But now we're talking about our communal relationship, our spiritual relationship with one another, community. And we'll finish up with mission here in the next few weeks. I want to start off with just a quick pop quiz, one of those ones where you raise your hand and keep it up until I say something that you disagree with, and then you put your hands down, all right? So that's how we're going to jump into this. The first one should be low-hanging fruit, I hope, but would you agree with this statement by a raise of hands? Relationships are important. Would you agree with that statement? Relationships are important. Now keep them up for now. Keep them up. Uh, if you don't agree with it, you kind of take your hand down, because I want to I gauge how important this is to you. Would you agree with this statement? Relationships are essential to life. That was a little bit more nuanced there, right? Because some of you... Uh, some of you, uh, you know, minimalists are like, well, I don't know if I need food, water, air. I mean, I could probably live without a person. But now let me take it even further. Without good relationships in your life, you will surely die. How many of you agree with that statement? You will surely die. All right, all right. You can go ahead and put your hands down. A few, few of you kept them up. No matter how far you keep your, your hand up, most of us agree in general that relationships are good for us. They're high up on that priority list for us. So I was reading this article the other day that challenged my understanding of it. This was the title of the article. It said, Social Ties Boost Survival by 50%. Study covering over more than 300,000 participants across all ages reveal that adults get a 50%. Did you hear that? 50% boost in longevity if you have a solid social network. Now, I think we understand the emotional part of that, but did you know that it also affects your physical well-being? The article also went on to say, the benefit of friends, family, and even colleagues turns out to be just as good for long-term survival as, listen to this, giving up a a 15-cigarette-a-day smoking habit. By the study's numbers, interpersonal social networks are more crucial to physical health than exercising or beating obesity. Did you hear that? Your social network, your relationships are so important for you, not just emotionally, but physically to the extent that it's better for you than giving up smoking. It is better for you than exercise. That's crazy. I mean, it's a profound level of effect that it has on you that maybe you didn't realize. Now, why do you think it is? Why do you think it's that important? I mean, if you think about it, it's good to have purpose in your life and sometimes other people can bring that into your life it's good to be able to rely on people when you need help but sometimes it's even better to have somebody who relies on you as well for their well-being 
And where there's mutual communal contribution to your life, it can buffer you from stressful things. You have someone to talk to about it. You have someone that can lift you up when you fall down, right? These are all kind of the obvious ones. One of the points the study made, though, is the survival rates were lifted because people around you could hold you accountable. Check this out. This is what it said. Spouses and adult children may be nagging the person with a chronic illness to take their medication. Nagging is good for your health. Brilliant. You can see how it makes sense. There's this level of accountability built into it, and we can all agree that it's important, but check this out. I want you to to pay attention to this. How important is it to you that you specifically and intentionally operate in a strategic way that builds a good social network around you? I was reading a book one time, uh, and now this is admittedly very stereotypical, but but I think statistically it, it, it checks a little bit. It said, how many of you have a best friend? I want you to imagine right now your best friend. Who's a best friend in your life right now? Your BFF, your ride or die, who is it? Have you talked to that person in the last two months? I hope so. Have you talked to that person in the last one month? Have you talked to that person in the last two weeks? Because they said, as you define this, how close can someone be? How effective can they be as a friend in your life? If you never talk to them. The second thing that they said is, how close in proximity to, do, you, do, they ha- do you have with them? Can you share a grocery store with them? Could you accidentally go get groceries and run into your BFF? And this is what the book said. Most women do, and almost no men do. Almost all women do, but almost no men have a friend who they would consider their best friend, lives close enough to interact with them regularly, and that they've talked to in the last two weeks. And he says this is one of the most fatal flaws in the Christian church today that we don't realize is even happening. And my point is just this. Even though we know it's incredibly important, even though for emotional, for physical, all of these different reasons, we don't prioritize building up our network, our social network, in real IRL, right? In real life. Real people, we're not talking about Facebook, we're not talking about followers. How much do you prioritize building that network as you do with other things that you think are important, like your exercise routine or your career or or your education or the way that you build into it? I mean, I saw so much strategy going into my kids' soccer teams. Do you think strategically about your relationships and the circles of influence that you hang out with in the same way? And my guess is probably not quite the same. I'm going to read to you from Romans 12. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles um, right now to Romans 12. We will have the the verses up there, um, but go ahead and open up your Bibles if you have one or or click over to it. Romans 12, I'm going to read these first couple of verses, um, and then I'll kind of set this up how I want us to look at it. We're going to read this entire chapter, but more as like an overview, and I'll show you why in just a second. Romans 12 1 and 2 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's usually the focus when people teach from this. But then it says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I'm not trying to go deep exegetically into this. I want to pull out one application from that, and then I want to talk to you about, or read to you a, a description of what that community looks like in a Christian context through the rest of the chapter. But this is what I want you to see. While we attempt to counter it at times, we live in an individualist society. What do I mean by that? 
Well, as opposed to a collectivist society. And the basic fabric of our culture are these four things. You can see them on this picture. Now, this comes from very well. It's like an emotional, psychological wellness um, site. The traits of an individualist culture psychologically behind the scenes, they honor self-sufficiency. These are the four pillars. These, these things are always present in, in, in an individualist society. Self-sufficiency. I love that little axe guy. I don't, I don't know what he, what, why that's self-sufficient, but he's cutting that wood. Uniqueness, autonomy, and independence. The four pillars of an individualist society. Now what I want you to catch inside of this is that this is the pattern of this world. This is the pattern of America. These, these are the schematics. That's what that word is. It's a, it's a word for blueprint. Pattern means schem- schematic, meaning blueprint, a way in which you will build something upon. And this is the pattern of an American cultural lifestyle right here. Self-sufficiency, uniqueness, autonomy, and independence. But more specifically, being so dependent upon uh, uh, yourself that if you depend on anyone for anything else, it's considered shameful and embarrassing. Has anyone felt that? Your individual rights take center stage over the community around us. People often place a greater emphasis on standing out and being unique. People tend to be self-reliant. So America's built on, celebrates, has a strict adherence to it, and it's being discipled to you from the very beginning. Recently, I saw the movie The Good Dinosaur. Has anyone seen it? It's funny. It's a kid's movie. Animated dinosaurs acting in a Western scenario. I don't know how that makes sense, but that's what they did. But the whole crux of this is that this kid, this young dinosaur, I shouldn't even say kid, this animated young dinosaur gets separated from his family. I can't remember exactly why. I was actually listening to it while we were on a road trip and our kids were watching it in the backseat behind us. And, and what happens is he kind of gets lost on his own. He's trying to make his way back to his family and he learns a bunch of uh, really good values while he's out. And eventually this older, gruff dinosaur who's, who's kind of like the old cowboy in this, again, I don't know how those two worlds come together, but it did. He teaches them how to how to do all of these things, how to be stronger, how to be a little bit more self-sufficient. And the whole crux of it is that at the end, he separates out, and it's time to to move on. And and this older dinosaur, he looks down at him, and he says, you're going to be all right. You're one tough kid, meaning you're self-sufficient, meaning you're able to take care of yourself. You don't need us now. And that is the value, being discipled, even at a young age, into my children as they watched this show. We prize it, we protect it. Now, contrast that with the collectivist culture. These are the characteristics of a, of a good collectivist cultural participant. Being self-sacrificing, being dependable, being generous, being helpful to others. All of these things are of highest importance in a collectivist culture. Which one sounds more like Jesus to you? Now, I'm reminded of this old saying. It says, we can have everything we want exactly as we want it if we want to be alone. Because as soon as you enter one person into your world, there's a collaboration that takes place, right? A, a social negotiation of you get what you want sometimes, I get what I want at other times, and we interact in a way, and it's messy, and it's filled with compromise, but the Bible says it's good for you. Do you believe that? I'm going to continue through Romans. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to read from verse 3 all the way to the end of the chapter. Again, not exegetically. What I want you to think of as we read it is, how can I possibly do this in the culture I live in? It says this, For by the grace given me, I say to everyone of you, do not think of yourself as more highly than you ought. 
but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you, for just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encourage, if it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Now, now what we saw is an interactiveness about gifts, and what we saw was laying ourselves down as a sacrifice. Now, it's going to change just a little bit. Verse 9, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in conflict, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. How many of us are good about doing that on our own? How many of us need a little nudge every once in a while to be better at those things? Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. There's a shift of uh, status taking place in this community. 17, and we'll finish out here. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge my dear friends, but then, but leave room for God's wrath, or it is said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord, on the contrary, and this is a connection part, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, if he is thirsty, give him something to drink, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, those last parts are so incredibly difficult, unless there's someone holding you accountable to doing them. Paul's letter here in the Romans in this, this verse, this uh, uh, chapter, gives us just a beautiful depiction of what community inside of a church is supposed to look like. But think about how difficult this is to live out in a day-to-day -day context. You're supposed to be fully given in sacrifice, working in opposition to the patterns of the world, integrated in roles and functions with resources, with gifting, linked together in our pursuit to hate what is evil and cling to what is good, to grow in the likeness of Jesus. We have to be independent. We have to be interdependent on each other, faithful to what he's done. I love that part. We prayed it this morning as our group um, was preparing for today's service that we would love and have spiritual zeal and fervor, that we need each other to stir up spiritual fervor and zeal in one another. Why are we encouraged to do this in community? Because it's impossible. I would say it's impossible to do alone. It's not a surprise. We kind of get that we need each other, right? But why do we insist on doing it alone? Well, just as it's impossible to do it on our own, we also recognize it's hard to stick together. Amen? <laughs> you can admit that to one another. I know there's others present here to hear you say that. It's hard to live with one another sometimes. It's hard to be in community, right? We have competing values. We have all of these different things that we're wired. We have different giftings that we're intending to do, and we're rebellious sinners at our core. So there's going to be difficulty in that. One commentator said in Romans 12, Paul paints a picture of the people of God as inextricably intertwined 
both as a family of brothers and sisters, as well as a body with many parts, all of which need one another. If you keep reading the New Testament, and honestly, if you pursue, pursue any relationship beyond the surface level, you will discover the depths of community is very challenging. I want us to name two ideas and then make some adjustments as they contrast with the schematic or the pattern of this world. And this is it. This is going to sound contradictory, but, but, I, but I, I mean what, what I'm saying here. I want us to understand this fact. We are all socially way more connected than we might realize. We are all socially more connected than we realize. Our cultural emphasis in this moment is on the individual, but our cul- and our culture wants to convince you that your decisions do not have an effect on anyone else, but I don't think that's biblically true. Any systems analyst understands that we are all incredibly connected in systems thinking. They have these kind of formats that they use to describe some of those. And I want to put one up on the screen for you. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe in autonomy or not, you don't exist in a void. You can't exist in a void. And what you do positively or negatively affects the world around you. And so this is one of them. Usually at each of those points where the arrows go to, there's like a one, two, three, four, five. And when I, uh, I, was, I was learning about this in a class context, and they had us all grab a rope, stand in a circle and grab a rope using the same kind of arrow format. And so the idea was, if, if you, you don't maybe realize it, but you're directly connected maybe to the person next to you, maybe to someone across the way from you by a direct relationship. But you're then connected to everyone else because that person's connected to someone else. And so they said, now take the rope, stand in a circle, everyone kind of does the rope in that way, pull on it, and obviously the people next to you kind of pull this way. But so does some of those people, and so does some of the people they're connected to, right? And you can kind of see that, I mean, the, the analogy is pretty basic, but you understand the idea that no matter what we do, we are all interconnected, and we cannot unplug ourselves from that. So I want you to hear, you are more connected to people than you might realize. This discussion, and this, uh, there was a guy who was a computer program systems analyst, and, and I said, hey, what do you think of this? He said, this is all tracking with me. He said, my job is to watch the web of connections inside of a program. And when we make changes here, I have to anticipate the blowout that will take place on the other side and, 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 and lessen that to the, as much as possible. He said, I see it all the time. The same thing happens with our family relationships. The decisions you make here can have an effect way around on the people who are, are, are around you, whether you know it or not. And so I want you to think that through there. there is, there's kind of two ways to maybe bring these two things together. One is that I want you to, say, to see this idea. Um, if you c- c- consider the body illustration, there is no such thing as a private decision or a private sin. The things you think you do in private are actually connected to everything else that goes on. And so remember the body illustration. I had this image in my mind um, this week of a toe. As small as your toe, your pinky toe is, if your toenail gets infected, that starts to affect your foot and your leg, your joints. You know, you start to get that infection in your bloodstream. Your joints start to hurt. And eventually, if you do not remove that toenail or or the cause of that infection, it is going to infiltrate and destroy the rest of the body connected to it. And so our seemingly unseen, unspoken, undisclosed sins affect the greater body more than we might realize because we are connected. But the opposite is also true. The blessings 
that you give to the body, the prayers that you pray in secret, the service that you give to one another, your diligent reading of God's word or lack thereof affects the body of believers that you are a part of. It says here that we're to stir up zeal, spiritual, spiritual fervor, and be joyful in hope. And if your private world isn't cultivating that so that when you come here or go to your house church or interact together, that it's overflowing into the world around you, then you're like an empty well. Or you're an overflowing stream. And so all the positive things, not just negative, not just sin, but all the positive things have the ability to, when you cultivate it in your private life, overflow into joyful, fervent spirituality and zeal and and cause mutual edification to the greater body of the church. So the question really is, are you you creating that? Are Are you cultivating your spiritual life in private so that it benefits the group because you are responsible to us to, to, with us to each other. So are you building that environment here or are you tearing it down? Are you building that or are you just taking from it? There's seasons to take. But, but by and large, do we come here ready to say, I have a gift to impart to you today and I want you to benefit from it this morning? We're more connected than we realize. Um, but, the, but, but I also want you to see one, one more truth. We're also further away from each other, and maybe intentionally so. We're more connected than we might realize, but we are also so disconnected from each other so as to be ineffective to one another. And this is what I mean by that. We intentionally protect ourselves from being too connected, right? From being too available, from being too transparent or vulnerable with one another because we want to be just connected enough, just just connected enough to be friendly, to be seen as a participant in what's going on, but not connected enough that anyone actually truly knows you to your core. And so you say, hey, how's it going? And everyone says, good, right? But have you ever had one of those, we got some people here in our community that say, you're good, and they'll say, are you really? And then you got to stop and really ask that question, like, oh, I don't know, what was this week like? I was just being polite. We don't actually want people to know us because, and I think this is probably the reason, what if they reciprocate it? You don't want to know other people. What if they want to get to know you? What if there's a point where they start to dig into your life beyond what you're comfortable and you're like, well, hold up. Like if I ask you how you're doing really, you might ask me how I'm really doing and I might have to answer that honestly. And we don't actually want to take responsibility for each other. So we resort to things like this. I don't want to get in their business mostly because I don't want them to reciprocate it. I want them in my business. God says you need people to get in your face if you're walking an unhealthy path and say, stop what you're doing. We say things like we might we get to know them just enough to be perceived as a participant, uh, but, but the moment that they ask for something or inconvenience us too much, we want to opt out of that. And God says you need people that you can rely on and that can rely on you in order to be a healthy Christian. 
listen to this, we'll even make financial obligations with people instead of asking friends for help because it's easier and cleaner just to pay somebody to help you in a given situation because there might be a string attached to that or they might ask you for a favor in return. And so you say, you know, I'm just going to pay someone to do this. Then it's done and clean. And after, it's, after the payment's done, I don't have to worry about this relational entanglement anymore. Have you seen that happen in your lives? This isn't what God wants from us. The overarching sentiment in our culture is you do you, I can do what I want. Nobody has the right to impose their opinions on each other, on me, on you. Do what you love, own your own truth. Like these are all common sayings, but none of these ideas consider the communal obligation that you might have with one another. Consider the responsibility you might have for the rest of the people in the room. Even having the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus. I told myself I wasn't going to go on this tangent, but I'm going to do it real quick. That is a lens that we read the Bible through that's individualist. So have you ever read the Bible and it says a person in their entire household came to know God? And in our minds, we're immediately like, well, I don't know. Did each and every one of those people have a personal relationship with Jesus? I bet it's not true. And we start to correct the communal understanding of the Bible with our individualist ideology. We don't even, it's so far from us, we don't even know what it would be like to be so responsible for each other that you would never make a decision that big apart from each other. That you would never even consider how this would affect the community around you. We're conditioned, like I said, from a young age. All the while our culture is saying, do what you want with your money, with your body, with your relationships, with your commitments, with your vote, with your politics, with your time, whatever you want to put in that blank. Nothing you do is an independent decision apart from the community. We're a body. It all affects the rest. And you and I were meant to be responsible for one another in the midst of that. Those are the two truths. I have just a couple more things, and I'll summarize them a little bit more since we're pushing our time. All of these cultural ideals, um, they accomplish an end goal of autonomy if you want to follow them. All of the ones that I mentioned from the world. But if you're a Christian, you've been told not to follow that schematic. You've been told to be connected. Now, maybe we have a community here today, and, and you, you're not in a type of proximity where people are actually effective in your life. And so is there someone in your life who is around you enough to notice that you've been acting weird, that you're being a little different than you normally are, something's off? We insulate ourselves just enough so that there isn't really that kind of level of connection. You're being odd today. You're, you're acting a little short to the other people around us. It seems like you're kind of down today. You're maybe a little disengaged more than I normally see in your life. Agitated, angry. You look distressed. You look anxious. You look depressed. This is why it's important to have actual physical proximity with one another because you have to have somebody that has the ability to notice and call out those things even when you don't notice on your own to say, hey, something's off. Are you okay today? And if not, you don't have this kind of Christian community that Paul is describing to us. Your maturity in Christ is stunted. It's stunted. And we're closer than we realize, and we're further apart than we should be. So what if we did this? What if we embraced this community, this idea of connectivity that already exists? What if we dropped the walls of insulation and said, I'm going to intentionally stay connected to a body of people with and for effective kingdom work in my life and around me? What if we just said, "That's okay, we're going to do that. 
Instead of running from it, I'm going to embrace that. And our connection with others in Christ should be this unique relationship, different from all of your other relationships, right? So this means that you should be spending a lot of time with people who follow Jesus. In, in Acts, it says that they were hanging out every single day, breaking bread together on a regular basis. These should be the most important relationships in your life of anyone on earth should be those who know Jesus and follow them. You should prioritize this Christian community above any other community that you might have inside of your life. 2 Corinthians 6 says this, high level of, of, of emphasis on this um, Christian community. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light cord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What ag- agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The most influential relationships in your life should be those who are moving toward Jesus and not in some other direction. And you see in the Bible, over and over, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's kind of these two places by which you can reside. These two existences, these two cities, sometimes people will call them. And it's the empire of the world, it's the kingdom of God. And so in the Old Testament, what you see is Egypt as the empire versus the Hebrews, Later on, you have some of these other places, Baal, the god of Baal and the followers of Baal. Babylon versus those who are held captive as Israel. The New Testament talks about the Greek-speaking world, sorry, the Greek world and Roman world versus the Jews. It's this historic retelling of these two worlds that we can reside in and we have a choice to move in either direction. And it says this, it's this tension that, that the verse we just read says, darkness, light, Belial, Christ, world and kingdom, flesh and spirit. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world, they have ways in which they live. Romans 8, 13 says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so it makes sense that in your most important decisions, you would say, I'm going to ask and seek counsel from and work alongside, be yoked to people who are going towards Jesus. Because if they're going in a different direction, we're not even after the same goal. And I don't say that just to be some odd separationist, like you shouldn't interact with people. It's not even to say that we can't learn things from the world around us. But when you make real important decisions, when you decide how you're going to serve, what your identity is, your marriage, vocation, children, anything of importance, you should be operating with the assumption that godly Holy Spirit counsel is best. And God gives us warning not to be too intimately connected to the world over and over because it's going to lead us to a different destination. It's just not the same direction. And so we want to be connected and um, uh, in a way that prioritizes Christian community. The second thing here is if we want to be intentionally connected for kingdom purposes, we want to protect our Christian community, which means we fortify, we, we have to be fortified as a people with a distinct identity capable of creating strong bonds that are not easily fractured either by internal or external pressure. Right? So internal pressure, meaning we have a hard time dealing with each other already. And so we have to be able to lay down our lives. We have to be able to put away our preferences and defer to one another and be a people that are so overwhelmingly forgiven that we can look at you and say, I'll forgive you for not being God because you're not God. You're a person like me and we're all going to mess up. 
And so we have to be a community of forgiveness. If we want to stay together, and even so, you will be offended. But in order to cover these offenses, we have to be willing to listen to each other, have a fortitude of heart to say, I'm not leaving. I'm going to stick this through. And so if God's people are most important, we need to be around them all the time, willing to fortify ourselves against minor fractures that could develop inside of our hearts. We also have this external pressure that we have to be a people of conviction, that we have this separated outness, this holiness about us that makes us different, a carved out unique community in the midst of the world around us. So we have to have this distinction of the people who are engaged with the world but not polluted by it, not given over to our own flesh. As we close, this is what I want to do. I want us to take stock a little bit in that. These are the questions I want to ask, um, and I want you to ask yourself, how is your community right now? All right, that's a very broad question. How is your community right now? But if at the beginning of this sermon you identified you actually don't have a best friend that's close enough to you in proximity to interact with you and be effective in your life, maybe that's your starting point. You need to find a friend. You need to find somebody who will check in with you and ask you hard questions, who will hold you up when you're struggling, who will spur you on to zeal and spiritual fervor. Maybe you have a good community around you, but it's not Christian. You need to look at that community and the, and the direction it's moving and understand that you must be moving in a direction towards Christ, otherwise you will be led astray. You build on the pattern of the world and you will sabotage your walk with God. We have so much freedom in our day. We have so many options, opportunities, and alternative communities, gyms, and work communities, and all the different things we can do and be a part of that sometimes we take Christian community for granted. So recultivate the value of Christian community in your life. Our house churches, again, will begin in the fall, so is it time to get connected? I'm not going to push that too much. I just want you to consider it. If you're not connected to a house church, we'll be launching new ones in the fall, so think about that. If you're in a house church right now, does your community have these values built into them? Are you still operating in an individualist context in your house churches? And being in community is only as good as the people who are in it. So are you personally being the kind of person you want the rest of your house church people to be for you? Are you being that person? Are you working on being that person? And then I wanted to say this one little thing before we close out. Um, I mentioned it briefly at the beginning. But I want to say, um, if you have been hurt by a Christian community, I, I mean, I, I first, I guess, I just want to apologize. I think there's been a lot of generational hurt. There's been a, a lot of ethnic hurt. And if the body of Christ has hurt you, I, I'm sorry. But I want to ask you maybe to give it another chance. Could you be courageous, brave enough to say, I'm going to try it one more time? Maybe three more times if it needs to happen. Because you can't do this life alone. God created you for community, to live in a network of interdependent relationships, to shore each other's burdens, to share your gifts, be faithful to one another, bless one another. And our individual's culture is going to want to try to pull you away from that. Be aware of it. Don't be afraid of it. Be aware of it. See where it's finding its way in your life. See where it's trying to convince you that freedom, blessing, growth, fullness of human expression 
is found apart from your responsibility to a community. It's a lie. It's the world. It's the kingdom of empire. And if we have any chance of following and growing up into the fullness of the maturity of Christ is what Ephesians said. We have to have each other in our lives. If we have any chance of loving God well and loving our neighbor as ourselves, if we have any possibility of accomplishing the Great Commission to tell the world of who Jesus is, it's going to be done not in the context of individualism, but in the context of a tight-knit, Holy Spirit-empowered community. And this community, if you're willing to accept it, is a gift It is a grace to you, it is a calling, and it is a discipline you will have to choose to embrace at times. Will you take responsibility for it? Let's pray together. Now, Lord, so thank you so much for just the community that is here in our midst, those who are gathered online together, that even in a pandemic that has separated and scattered and fractured our, our, our world to a, a, an incredible extent, beyond imagination, Lord, you can still keep us together in spirit, in heart. And now that we're able to gather together, God, now that we're able to come together in, in gatherings like this, Lord, it took a community of people to pull off this service this morning. A community of people that prayed for each other, that offered up their gifts to one another so that we could sing and open God's word together so that our children could be worked with, that they could be loved on so that the things that take place in here could be, people could be greeted and we could all hang out, Lord. All of it takes community. And as we've submitted that to Jesus to do whatever he wants with God, I pray that you would allow everyone who has come into the hearing and into the presence of God through our service would engage with God and not be the same on the other side. Change us, mold us, God. Use each other. Father, may we choose community over our individualist conditioning. Yes, Lord. We ask for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.